science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. Welcome aboard, everyone. I'm Joe Schwartz, and uh, as I like to tell you every week, I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society, where we have a mandate to demystify science for you guys, the public, and of course for our students as well, and we hope to foster critical thinking. We like to keep you up to date on what is happening in the world of science, and if all goes well, we endeavor to keep you out of the clutches of charlatans. And as you know, there are many of them out there. Uh, my background is chemistry. That's what I've spent uh, most of my career doing. And uh, it's my belief that uh, chemistry, which is the study of matter and the changes that matter undergoes, is a fundamental science. And it is the one that uh, basically links the other sciences together. Because if you have an understanding of what molecules are all about, you have a pretty good feel for what can and cannot happen in the world. Well, let's start out today by uh, talking about Oreos. <laughs> All right. Well, many of us have performed the experiment without realizing we have done it. You pick up an Oreo cookie, you twist to separate the two halves, lick the filling, and then proceed to eat the cookie either with or without further processing by dunking in milk. Well, surveys show that about 35% of Oreo eaters twist and lick, with women preferring to do this by a two to one margin. 30% of Oreo lovers prefer to dunk, and men like to do that more than women. The margin is about two to one. Dunkers do not have the option of splitting the cookie after dunking, of course, because once you've soaked the cookie in milk, it is impossible to separate the two halves. But of course, uh, they can certainly split it before the twisters dunk after separating the halves isn't clear. The remaining 35% of Oreo eaters who do not twist or dunk supposedly just unimaginatively bite into an Oreo without any further action. It's whether twist and liquors prefer the filling to be evenly distributed between the halves or they like it to adhere to one half so that the lick can deliver a more substantial amount. It turns out that Oreo cookie tends to cater to consumers who enjoy a distribution that favors the content sticking to only one wafer. We know this thanks to some pioneering research carried out by scientists at MIT's Department of Mechanical Engineering. As published in the journal Physics of Fluids, a very reputable journal, these scientists devised an ingenious experiment to investigate the process of separating the two halves of an Oreo cookie with a goal of determining the fate of the cream filling. Using a rheometer, 
a laboratory instrument that measures the way a liquid, a suspension, or a slurry flows, uh, they manage to design a very clever experiment because it turns out that the way that, that fluids maneuver depends on the applied forces. And they were able to determine that the fate of the cream filling in an Oreo cookie uh, in response to counter-rotation of the two wafers uh, makes for some interesting data. They cleverly coined the term Oreology, combining Oreo with rheology, which is the study of the flow of matter. So does the filling stick preferably to one half, or is there an even distribution? That was the earth-shaking question. It turns out, maybe somewhat surprisingly, that there is a predictability as to what will happen. When the two wafers that make up the Oreo cookie are counter-rotated, that is, one rotating in one direction, the other in the other, the filling is more likely to end up on one side. And really, to separate the two halves, you have to do this counter-rotation. If you just try to pull the cookie apart, the, the two wafers will break. Anyway, the explanation offered for why uh, the filling stick to one side more than the other has to do with the manufacturing process. When the cookies are made, and of course they're made by machine, the cream is applied to one wafer and the second wafer is then placed on top. This results in stronger adherence to the bottom half, hence the cookies are twisted apart, the filling is about 95% more likely to stick to that half. Since the cookies are placed in their package with a uniform orientation, again, that's done by machine, one can predict where the filling will end up, allowing for the planning of one's preferred twist, lick, and dunk operation. It turns out that the rate of rotation, the thickness of the filling, or its flavor do not have an effect on the uh, ratio of adhesive to cohesive failure. Okay, what do those terms mean? <clears throat> adhesive failure occurs when the filling fails to stick to one side, whereas cohesive failure occurs when the cream splits somewhere in the middle, sticking unevenly to both wafers. What does make a difference, though, is storage of the cookies. Storing for a long time, especially if under higher temperatures and greater humidity, uh, is more likely to result in cohesive failure, supposedly due to changes in the rheology of the cream with time. To further complicate matters, the adverse storage conditions do not affect the cookies in a package evenly, so that selecting a cookie with hopes of adhesive rather than cohesive failure becomes less predictable. To avoid disappointment, unless dealing with a fresh package of Oreos, it is best to forget about split and lick and just take a bite. Of course, there's always the option of, uh, of dunking. Well, you may wonder, you know, why I'm talking uh, about this. Uh, seems to be a rather bizarre uh, experiment. And uh, it is. But the reason that it is so interesting, because the paper that was published on this is an extensive with all kinds of, of, of measurements and the amount of time that was devoted to this research 
was considerable by uh, a number of, of scientists. And the question comes up, why? I'm not sure that I really have an answer to, to that in this particular case, because it is hard to see uh, what the spin-off of this research would be, you know, other than the, the curiosity that, that uh, the filling sticks to one side more than the other when you twist open the, uh, the Oreo cookie. So the question comes up, could this time not have been better spent? And, uh, you know, in, in research, we have two kinds of, of, of research. We have what we call fundamental research, which is research just for the sake of finding out what happens to satisfy curiosity, because you never know where it will read and the lead. And the other type of research is goal-oriented research, where you are trying to find, let's say, a, a specific antibiotic to counter the effect of, of some bacteria. So this one obviously is not really applied research. I mean, I don't think that there's going to be any great consequence that comes out of this. So this would be in the realm of fundamental research just to satisfy curiosity. However, in this case, it's also hard to imagine uh, what spin-off would come from this research. And, uh, you know, could the time have been better spent could the money have been better spent? I think probably that is the case. But anyway, this research was published by MIT, a pretty reputable institution, by uh, mechanical engineers who study rheology. And uh, I guess they think that something important might come uh, out of this. So anyway, next time you pick up an Oreo cookie, uh, you can think of the research that has gone into determining where the filling ends up when you twist and turn and try to pull that cookie apart. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll check traffic and be right back. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Welcome back. I've uh, been asked quite often what I think of videos by Dr. Michael Greger. Now, Dr. Greger certainly is, is a, a reputable physician, you know, proper medical uh, degree. And he produces these, oh, three to four minute uh, videos uh, virtually every day. They're very slick and uh, the production values are, are high. The science is generally sound. And uh, so uh, because I was asked so many uh, questions about this, I did prescribe or subscribe to these uh, videos and they appear virtually every day. And I started to watch them and it soon became clear that there is an agenda here. Every video either speaks about the benefits of some plant component in the diet or the harm caused by some chemical in animal products. It turns out that uh, Dr. Greger uh, has swallowed the vegan philosophy hook, line, and sinker. Of course, not that there's anything wrong with that. You can have a very good balanced diet that's vegan. So he promotes veganism with religious fervor and has forged a career, including guesting on the 
to Dr. Oshur. <laughs> Isn't that the ultimate recognition of scientific expertise? No. He also was an expert witness on Oprah's behalf when she was sued by meat ranchers for defaming hamburger. Anyway, you will never see Dr. Greger refer to a study that shows anything positive about meat, but you will see plenty of studies that point out the pitfalls of consuming animal products. While there is some zealotry here, the studies that Dr. Greger enthusiastically endorses are from respected journals and do merit our attention. But there is some cherry-picking of information here. Of course, that doesn't mean the cherry she picks are rotten. They're fine, but there are other trees to pick from that he ignores. For example, eggs are a no-no for Gregor. He refers to Harvard researchers who found that compared to men who hardly ate any eggs, men who ate even less than a single egg a day had a twofold increased risk of prostate cancer progression. The suggestion is that choline in eggs is to blame. Dietary choline is converted in the gut to trimethylamine, which in turn is converted by bacteria to trimethylamine oxide, a substance that can cause inflammation and promote the progression of cancer. Yes, a possible scenario. But what about the fact that fish is a far greater source of trimethylamine than eggs and is linked to reduced risk of prostate cancer? Or that intake of whole grains fosters the growth of gut bacteria that form trimethylamine oxide, yet men who eat a lot of high-fiber foods have a low rate of cancer? And linoleic acid, prominent in vegetable oils, favored by Dr. Greger, has been associated with prostate cancer, but you won't hear about these things from him. Gregor also refers to a study that received a lot of press for linking trimethylamine oxide to heart disease. It's not saturated fat or cholesterol that do us in, it's trimethylamine oxide, claims the paper published in the, of course, very reputable New England Journal of Medicine. That's not the National Enquirer. And eggs are a major source of this chemical. But what about other studies that exonerate eggs? A meta-analysis of studies that examined the association between egg consumption and stroke and heart disease was uh, published in the British Medical Journal. It involved some 474,000 subjects, followed for anywhere from 8 to 22 years, and found no association between egg consumption and stroke or heart disease, even when an egg was eaten every day. Perhaps the largest ongoing study of diet and disease, the National Health and Nutrition Examination Study in the US, actually found an inverse association between egg consumption and stroke. And a study in Japan found that consumption of animal products, including eggs, was associated with reduced risk of death from stroke. And then there is even a study that shows eating eggs leads to the formation of larger, less dense LDL and HDL particles that protect against heart disease. As is apparent, there are always at least two sides to every story. And then, of course, there's the truth somewhere in between. And that truth is complicated. Dr. Gregor isn't bothered by such conundrums. He isn't interested in whether the egg or the chicken came first. He wants to get rid of both. And that's more ideology than science. So what you know, what do we make altogether of 
Dr. Greger and his vegan philosophy. <clears throat> I have nothing against veganism. I, I think that um, it is certainly possible to have a very healthy, perhaps even an optimal diet uh, that is um, purely vegetarian, as chewing even fish or, or eggs. Certainly it's possible to do that. But you do have to, to take a, a bit of care when you are pursuing that. It's not just um, eating randomly as long as you're not consuming any uh, meat products. But it's certainly possible to have a balanced uh, diet. And as I said, it, you know, it, one can even make the argument that it is preferable. There are all kinds of studies showing that um, you, know, you can lose more weight on a vegan diet and that um, it reduces risk of, uh, of heart disease. It may take a bit of getting used to by people who have uh, grown up with uh, more of a carnivorous uh, diet. But uh, my view is that it does not need to be uh, a yes or no situation. Science rarely requires that. Science is not white or black. It is uh, often various shades of gray. And so it is in, in, in this case, when you're talking about eating meat or not eating meat. Uh, I, I think that a, a diet that is a, a purely carnivore diet, which is espoused by some people these days, you know, eating nothing but meat, that is not uh, sustainable scientifically. There's no good evidence for that. Uh, I, I think a balance is what we should be looking for. I think most people in North America uh, eat too much meat. I think we can cut down on the amount of, of red meat that is consumed. But uh, in order to have a healthy diet, I don't think that it is necessary to totally eliminate uh, meat. And um, uh, I still enjoy listening to Dr. Greger uh, because, I mean, at least he does refer to the scientific literature, which is, you know, what we do. I mean, we normally, you know, worship at the altar of, of peer-reviewed research. However, you also have to understand that uh, with the fantastic number of scientific publications that, that uh, are thrown at us every single day, you can always cherry pick and uh, find a paper to essentially back up virtually any view that that you have. And this is, you know, one of the, the curse of, of uh, uh, scientific research almost having, you know, run amok these days. There are people all over the world researching everything, some of them uh, very good, some of them mediocre, uh, some of them very poor. So we have to be very careful, um, you know, on taking in the information that may uh, influence our life. So, you know, I espouse a, a diet that is essentially mostly plant-based, but I don't think it is necessary to avoid uh, all meat. And also, I think it's important to point out that uh, life uh, isn't all about determining whether every drop of beverage that we drink, every bite of food is good for us or not good for us. Uh, life is here to be uh, enjoyed. And sometimes you can take a bit of a risk. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. Check traffic and be right back. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800.
I think most of you know that uh, I'm a big fan of Sherlock Holmes. But I'm also a fan of Agatha Christie. Agatha Christie is, is uh, the most prolific author of, of Mr. Stories. And uh, she has been translated into more languages than any other author. That's quite a claim. So let me take a look at uh, some of her work from a scientific perspective. Agatha Christie, of course, is regarded as the queen of crime. And she had a personal interest in pharmacy. And consequently, the use of drugs and poisons often play a central role in her intricate plots. It was in the Cretan Bull, published in 1947, that she introduced her readers to the pharmacology of atropine. In a crafty account of love, rejection, and desperate revenge, the author tells of an attempt to convince a sane man that he is mad. His shaving cream is laced with atropine, which is absorbed into his system through the unavoidable nicks and cuts one gets when shaving. The resulting agitation, hallucinations, and mental clouding almost drive the intended victim to suicide until Hercule Poirot, who of course is Agatha Christie's detective, saves the day by declaring that atropine had been found in the shaving cream. Well, not only did Agatha Christie introduce her readers to atropine poisoning, but in a subsequent story, The Crooked House, she acquainted them with the usual antidote to atropine poisoning, and that is physostigmine. The plot was ingenious. An elderly tycoon suffers from diabetes and required daily insulin shots. He was also afflicted with glaucoma, which was being controlled with eye drops. Everything was fine until someone in the crooked house switched the eye drops with the insulin. Death came swiftly to the old gentleman, murder most foul. As clearly stated in the novel, the eye drops contained physostigmine, a substance introduced in the late 1800s for the treatment of excess pressure in the eyeball. That's a symptom characteristic of glaucoma. Physostigmine, or eserine as it is also known, constricts the pupils, an effect which in turn opens up the tiny ducts through which excess fluid is normally expelled from the eye. So Miss Christie had the right drug for the treatment of glaucoma, but could physostigmine really kill if injected into the bloodstream? The substance has a long and interesting history. It is the active ingredient in the calabar or ordeal bean found in the calabar region of Nigeria. Why is it called the ordeal bean? Because it was traditionally used by certain tribes as a test of guilt. Someone suspected of having committed a crime was forced to swallow a handful of beans. If he or she died, that was guilt. Unfortunately, uh, the person probably died even if he or she wasn't guilty. Physostigmine enhances the activity of acetylcholine, a neurotransmitter which in excess can cause paralysis of the respiratory muscles and death. Of course, it is possible that if someone were confident of his innocence, he would eat the beans quickly, vomit, and survive. By the late 1800s, Physostigmine had been isolated from the calabar bean 
and was widely used in the form of eye drops for the treatment of glaucoma. The amount applied to the eye on a daily basis was very little, but there was certainly enough active ingredient in the bottle to kill if directly injected with a syringe. If a physician had arrived soon enough, the effects may have been reversed. Atropine can neutralize the effects of excess acetylcholine. This antidote was routinely carried by doctors of the day as a heart stimulant. And so the world learned about atropine and physostigmine, not from teachers or doctors, but from the pen of Agatha Christie. There are many, many great books and short stories written by Agatha Christie, and they are highly addictive. And of course, if you don't like to read, you would rather watch, uh, I would suggest that uh, you watch the series. Uh, I think it's available on, on, on Crave. Uh, uh, about uh, many of the Agatha Christie stories and uh, Hercule Poirot, remarkably portrayed by David Suchet. Uh, he becomes Hercule Poirot. And uh, these productions are of very, very high quality and they respect the original stories. So I certainly recommend that you take a look at David Suchet's uh, uh, Agatha Christie stories in which he portrays um, uh, Hercule Poirot. Talking about, you know, drugs and, and their effects, turn <clears throat> up water because analysis has shown the presence of a variety of drugs. Now they are there at very low levels, but they are there. And you can find remnants of birth control pills, remnants of, of anti-anxiety drugs, antidepressants, antibiotics. I mean, virtually any drug that you've ever heard of, you can find remnants of it in tap water. Where do they come from? Not from the dumping of waste by pharmaceutical manufacturers, nor from people discarding old medication in the toilet. Now, of course, you should not do that anyway. You should not discard your medications in the toilet. Any medication that is out of date that you're not going to use anymore should be properly discarded and taken to a pharmacy. And the pharmacists, of course, have uh, uh, ways of discarding these. There, there's a company that comes around to, to pharmacies to collect uh, old used material and uh, they uh, uh, basically combust it. Anyway, so if it's not from uh, pharmaceutical manufacturer waste and, and not from uh, people dumping it down the toilet, what is the source of the remnants of uh, pharmaceutical products in our tap water? Well, believe it or not, it is human and animal urine, which uh, contains the excreted medications. Between 30 to 90% of medications, depending on which medication we're talking about, is excreted in the urine unchanged. And of course, the metabolites of these drugs are also excreted in the urine. And once they get into the urine, they get into sewage, and they end up in sewage treatment plants. Now, sewage treatment plants and municipal water treatment plants were not originally designed to remove these substances, which of course are there in, in very small amounts. So the concentration that ends up in tap water is indeed very low. Uh, to the order of parts per billion. However, 
just because the concentrations are so low doesn't mean that they are totally inactive. Because after all, um, when people express concern about pesticide residues in their food or in their beverage, we're also talking about parts per billion. And many human medications have hormonal effects. And when you're talking about hormonal effects, uh, these uh, can have an impact in, in very, very small concentrations. So, of course, we would rather not have pharmaceutical products in our, our, our drinking water. And uh, modern sewage treatment facilities uh, do uh, have a large variety of bacteria that will chew up excess medications. But no matter what you do, there will always be some remnants of medications that we consume whenever we drink tap water. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll check traffic and be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Well, we were talking earlier about food and, and you know what to eat, what not to eat. When I was talking about Dr. Greger's views on, on uh, vegan diets, and uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, food. You know, I, I, I do like uh, Broadway uh, musicals, and, uh, you know, the uh, classic uh, song from uh, Oliver, uh, food, glorious food, we're anxious to try it, three banquets a day, our favorite diet, just picture a great big steak, froze food, glorious food. I wish I could th sing it for you, but I can't sing. Uh, you know what I'm talking about, though, because uh, those lyrics, uh, you know, you've heard them in the musical Oliver. You've seen the movie version, probably. But just think about how much our lives really revolve around food. Uh, a great deal. There's no question about that. Consider often conversations drift to when to eat, what to eat, what not to eat, where to eat, how much to eat, and with whom to eat. To be sure, eating is one of the great pleasures of life. And so is talking about it. We debate whether the best pizza, the best bagel, the best croissant, the best hummus, the best burger, best smoked meat, where can these be found? Of course, in Montreal, we really do not have any debate about where the best smoked meat can be found. We all know where that is. And of course, with the current onslaught of nutritional information, discussions often gravitate towards the link between food and health. As we you know, talked about earlier, vegetarian, vegan, carnivore, keto, Mediterranean, gluten-free, dairy-free, intermittent fasting, all of these diets have their devotees, and of course, they have their critics. Now, obviously, the attention paid to nutrition is, is warranted. After all, besides water, food is the only raw material that ever enters our body. We are therefore constructed of what we eat. Our body breaks down food into its components and then reassembles these in various ways to form our tissues, our bones, and the myriad molecules involved in the reactions that together constitute life. There can be no question that we really are what we eat and that our health and internal life expectancy is a function of what we put into our body. 
Now, let's face it, though. I mean, food is not the only determinant of health. Uh, genetics play a role, our level of activity, exposure to microbes, possibly to environmental toxins, all of these play a role. But at least with food, we have some control over what we dig into. And therein lies a problem. What do we choose and how much? There's no lack of nutritional research to consider. Since 2017, roughly 2000, no, well, Let's do it on a yearly basis. I think that's more um, appropriate. 250,000 research papers have been published uh, you know, since uh, 2017. Uh, I normally like to say that that sort of translates into five papers every minute of every single day, you know, year round. I mean, that's you know, pretty amazing. Anyway, many of these have explored the link between health and the major food groups, namely fruits, vegetables, uh, whole or refined grains, nuts, legumes, dairy, sweeteners, eggs, fish, red meat, processed meat, all of this. As one might expect, given the large number of studies, diverse methodologies used, different populations examined, and uh, uh, who may have different vested interests, there's a fair degree of disagreement about the advice that should be offered to the public. Now, a team of Norwegian researchers has made a gallant attempt to quantify the risks and benefits of various dietary components in terms of modifying life expectancy. They have drawn on data available from the Global Burden of Disease Study, a collaborative ongoing effort by some 3,500 researchers around the world who assess risk factors for mortality and disability from major diseases in some 204 countries. Combining life expectancy information uh, with a PubMed search for meta-analysis studies that examine dose response data on the impact of various food groups on mortality, this has allowed researchers to estimate the change in life expectancy based on dietary sources. And they've tabulated this. Uh, which is, is really interesting. And it turns out that making dietary changes is worthwhile. A 20-year man or woman, 20-year-old man or woman, who makes appropriate changes can increase their life expectancy by an astounding 10 to 13 years. Think about that. Even if you are 60 years old, if you make changes, you can increase your life expectancy by eight to nine years. And even at age 80, life can be extended by about three years. So what dietary changes can bring about such impressive lengthening of life? Luckily, you don't have to starve yourself. You don't have to guzzle supplements or develop a taste for some esoteric fruit or plant that grows in a remote forest. The proposed dietary changes, as described in, in the paper that they published, are quite manageable. Adding 200 grams of legumes a day will get you two extra years, as will increasing whole grain intake from 50 to 225 grams. Eating a handful of nuts, that's about 25 grams, will get you an extra 1.7 years. 200 grams of fish will net half a year, as will 400 grams of fruit. And just to give you an idea, an apple is about 200 grams, half a cup of blueberries around 100. 
adding 150 grams of vegetables adds a third of a year. That's a cup and a half of broccoli. Well, dairy and white meat seem not to have any effect on longevity. Decreasing refined grains, like in white bread, from 150 to 50 grams, that will get you a year, as will cutting out sugar-sweetened beverages. Giving up bread and processed meat will result in a gain of three years in life expectancy. Remember, though, that statistics apply to populations, not to individuals, whose longevity is determined by numerous factors other than diet, ranging from inherited traits and body weight to activity level, chronic disease that may be present. While the specific number of years mentioned in this study may not be applicable to an individual, everyone is likely to benefit from paying attention to the data laboriously gathered and analyzed by these Norwegian researchers. So, bottom line, increase your intake of legumes, whole grains, nuts, vegetables, and fish, while you cut back on sugar, red meat, and processed meat. That is likely to give you more years and more occasions to debate the merits of this study. And that's it. That's all the time we have for today, but rest assured, we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. And cadmium and calcium and chromium and curium. There's sulfur, californium, and fermium, berkelium, and also mendelevium, einsteinium, nobelium, and argon, kryptonium, and radon, xenon, zinc, and rhodium, and chlorine, carbon, cobalt, copper, tungsten, tin, and sodium. These are the only ones of which the news has come to Harvard. And there may be many others, but they haven't been discovered.